everybody, welcome to episode 39 of Literary Disco, The Penis Play. In today's episode, we will begin with a bookshelf revisit, a segment in which Todd, Julia, and I take something down from our bookshelves to discuss. And then, if you thought our live Tampa show got bad, today we're going to talk about a play by Michael Bartlett that is titled simply, Cock. Yep. I am actor and filmmaker Ryder Strong. Joining me are essayist and radio personality Julia Pistel and novelist and critic Todd Goldberg. Welcome, guys. Good morning, sir. Hi. It's very early. How many coffees has everyone had? You know what? This is the, this is the challenge. Uh, I've not yet had any coffee. Oh, my God. Yeah, I know. Is that like is that like the Ambien challenge where you take an Ambien and just see how long you can stay well, awake? Well, also, we're going to have sex afterwards with the Ambien. <laughs> see if I remember it. Well, so, yes. ladies and gentlemen, we're, we're recording this on a Sunday morning, and um, I've just woken up, and I have yep. football to watch. I need to sort of tamp my excitement down and not have the coffee right away or else by 11 o'clock when the Raiders are down by 100 points, I will set the fucking house on fire. So I'm going to try not to drink coffee until, I don't know, until I need it, until I feel a chemical need for the coffee versus an entertainment need. I went to the coffee house across the street from my apartment and I ordered two coffees pretending that I was picking up the second one for a friend. Oh, that's sad. But I wasn't. That's sad. I just... Got two coffees. Don't uh, they just have great. a large enough size? <laughs> no. I ordered two larges. <laughs> oh, Jesus. Bookshelf, revisit somebody. You want me to start? I, I, I have something. It's okay. not a book, though. I hope you guys are okay with that. Uh, yeah. Come on. <laughs> come on, well, well, here's the deal. I've been writing incessantly for the, like, like and this is something that writers are going through, too, I suspect. We're, and you, Julia, as well, I'm sure you're writing incessantly. But I've been writing incessantly for two weeks for uh, various deadlines for uh, various different secret projects. And so I haven't been reading as much, but I've been listening to a lot of music while I've been writing. And I have been obsessively listening to the the new Jason Isbell album, Southeastern. It's great. And there's this song on it called Elephant that I listened to maybe like 20 times in a row until the point at which Wendy comes in and says, could you stop? playing that song <laughs> and i'm like but but it's getting me in this mood and she's like what are you writing about that you need to be in this mood and i'm like you know i don't really know what I, there's no reason i should be in this mood listening to the song so it's uh it's a song about um a guy talking to a friend um about dying basically and i put this up on my facebook the other day saying uh, Jason Isbell's Elephant is to songs about other people dying as Amy Hempel's In the Cemetery Rod Jolson's Buried is to stories about other people dying. Um, and it's short, so I thought I would just read it, and you guys can tell me how much you love it or hate it based on the lyrics themselves. Are you guys prepared? Okay. okay. Yes. yes, ready to judge. Here we go. She said, Andy, you're better than your past. Winked at me and drained her glass. Cross-legged on the bar stool like nobody sits anymore. She said, Andy, you're taking me home, but I knew she planned to sleep alone. I'd carry her to bed, sweep up the hair from the floor. And then the chorus goes, if I had fucked her before she got sick, I'd never hear the end of it. She don't have the spirit for that now. We drink these drinks and laugh out loud, bitch about the weekend crowd, and try to ignore the elephants somehow, somehow. She said, Andy, you crack me up, Seagram's in a coffee cup sharecropper eyes and hair almost gone when she was drunk she made cancer jokes she made up her own doctor's notes 
and this is the line that, ki that kills me every time, surrounded by her family, I saw that she was dying alone. Uh, I'd sing her classic country songs. She'd get high and sing along. She don't have much voice to sing with now. We'd burn these joints in effigy, cry about what used to be, and try to ignore the elephant somehow, somehow. I buried her a thousand times, giving up my place in line, but I don't give a damn about that now. There's one thing that's real to me. No one dies with dignity. We just try to ignore the elephant somehow. And that repeats several times. Oh, my God. <laughs> and wow. That's amazing. It's an amazing song, and I didn't do it justice by reading it because you got to hear Jason Isbell's pained, drained singing. And the entire album, Southeastern, um, it's his best work. If, if you're familiar with him out there in listener land, he was in the drive, or not familiar with him, he's in the drive by Truckers for many years, and then he went solo and uh, with his band. And then... Um, he finally got sober in the last year, and this is his first album that he's done sober. And it's a lot of, and uh, I use this word in the best way possible, not the songs about baseball way possible. They're all story songs uh, on his album. <laughs> and it's stories about, you know, basically not being drunk anymore, or experiences he had when he was drunk that he remembers, or that he's made up, obviously. Um, yeah, I just bought this album two days ago, and I haven't listened to it all the way through, but that first song that I heard was covered. Oh, up, it's a great it just, song. That song kills yeah. me. So that, that pulled me in. That made me buy the album, but I haven't quite listened to it all the way through yet. So, But his, I'm just... Oh, wow. I want to cancel this podcast recording session so I can just go listen to it. <laughs> I think the best songwriting that tells a story tells one that is familiar that you've never heard before, if that makes sense. So there's all sorts of songs, obviously, about love and about sadness and about want and need. And here's a song about a guy writing about someone dying of, of cancer. But it's, it's the, the moments of, you know, amazing beauty where he says, you know, that no one dies with dignity. Oh, man, that, that's a killer. Um, and that they yeah. sit and sing old country songs together. I mean, it's just extraordinarily powerful. And it's been the most moving artistic experience I've had in the last month, probably, has been listening to this album constantly over and over again to the point at which my wife thinks I might be ready to kill myself. She surely is ready to kill myself herself if I play it again. Uh, so that's my bookshelf revisit. Uh, Jason awesome. Isbell's Southeastern sure. album. First thing in the morning, 9 a.m. A little song about Diane for you guys. Yeah, it's a great song. I'm gonna do something that will hopefully cheer everybody up. Although it's not really good for a podcast because the book that I wanted to pull down from my bookshelf <laughs> is incredibly visual. Uh, I don't know if you guys have ever heard of this book, but it's like called Giants, and there's mm. a couple of books like this. No. Okay, so it's this giant giant huh? it's this big hardcover book called giants uh and it's illustrated by julia keller carolyn scrace and juan vingard and devised by david larkin i don't know i had this book because my brother and i were writing a fantasy movie and we started doing research into you know different uh books and illustrations of giants and trolls and whatnot and i when i was a kid we used to have a couple of books like these there's one called uh gnomes and what it is is it's basically like a book that that you know purports to tell the history of fantasy creatures like giants or gnomes, and they're just amazing illustrations. And they do like taxonomies of you know the different giants and different um, oh, wow. different species of giants and how to track a giant. And it's just something that my brother and I used to love when we were kids. There's also one on Santa Claus. 
and it's like, do you guys remember this? Like, no. You guys ever? I, There's like, it was a series of books, and I mean, I don't know if they were all by the same people or the same group, but there was. I just, I, I wish that there were more of these out there, um, because I, you, you can't find them except for like I, I, I found this in some you know online like obscure thing, and I had to pay a lot of money for it. But when we were kids, we had like four or five of these books, and they were so much fun. It would be like the Santa Claus book would have like diagrams on how he act, how his magical bag actually works and holds all the, um, the, the presents that he has to deliver around the world. Or, I, know, I would have it, liked to have seen that because I, I have to tell you, conceptually, it's extraordinarily yeah, difficult for me to exactly. understand Santa Claus. That's the thing. And, uh, and like, guys, so it's it, just it, exactly like Mary Poppins. I don't understand what's hard to... Mary Poppins he is breaks Santa. into people's houses and eats their food. The difference between Santa Claus and a home invasion robbery uh, is the red suit. The, get, the man is a villain. I tell you, a villain. And I don't just say he's that a, as a Jew. He's jolly. He's generous. <laughs> Yeah, so he's Ted fucking Bundy, is what he is. He's Ted Bundy in a red suit. Anyway, these books. <laughs> I, you know, do you guys remember, do you remember The Way Things Work, that book? Um, yeah, no one I remembers do. these things. Okay, yeah. well, there was just, there was an era, I feel like, in the, in the late 80s, early 90s, where big illustration books were popular. And, 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 and illustration books that were, like, cartoony, but then explained things in very simple ways, or either complicated ideas or complete fantasy ideas, like gnomes or santa claus or in this case giants and i just love those books and like i really want to make sure i have them around if and when i have kids because it totally fueled my imagination it was like you know i mean i remember todd we've talked about playing D D. like when you were a kid when you had the D D books like a lot of times you wouldn't read them you just look at the illustrations yeah, and be that's like, all i did oh, basically that's, yeah. totally, yeah. that's the you know so i guess i just want to appreciate like really good art and especially fantasy art um that is taken seriously in books and kids books um i just love it and I, it totally fueled my imagination as a kid and it's still fueling my imagination like i said my brother and i bought this book you know we had had this as a kid we were we had to find it again because we were like do you remember this giant's book and um, so I was able to find it online, and I just love those kinds of books. My revisit is very related to this conversation. So um, uh, as the three of us have talked about, but I don't think I've mentioned on the podcast yet, um, my significant other is now working for Lego um, as of about three weeks ago. So I have been reading a book that just came out called um, Brick by Brick, and it's about how Lego, the history of Legos and the Lego empire, and it's... It's a really, really great book. It's a, it purports to be a business book. I mean, it even addresses the reader once in a while, like, no, this is, no, don't think you can take this away for your business. But <laughs> embedded in this, <laughs> yeah, embedded in this is just this absolutely fascinating history of this toy that I have very recently discovered most people I know are completely obsessed with. Like, I did not realize how into Legos people are, like, how dedicated to the, the brand they are, how excited they get when you just talk about Legos. All these Lego fans are coming out of the woodwork in my life, so it's been really cool to read this book. And yeah, I mean, it really toy. is. There's, it's, it's flexible. It's like it's creative, but then it's also you know for people that like instructions and order, it satisfies that. It's like no matter what kind of kid you were, you could have fun with Legos. I, I had a really obsessive relationship when I was a kid with my Legos. Like I, I would build these fortresses and I would then hide things in there and then be like, all right, who's going to be looking for it now that I've hid this thing in here? Who could possibly come looking for fifty cents that I've hidden inside of a Lego structure? <laughs> 
This is so interesting. Somebody should write like a, a, a profile, like because I feel like people divide into specific types, like how you played with your Legos. Like, wh what did you do? Were you the type of person that had to do exactly what the kit told you to, and like you know do that, or were you the type of person like my brother and I would just buy the kits but then never make the actual thing? Yeah, just that's throw how I was. Them all in a pile, and then it was like, which kind of did you like the space Legos or the fantasy Lego or the brand Legos? Mm -hmm. You know, like they were the ones that were based on actual existing uh, content and stories. I mean, I was a big fantasy one. Like, for me, it was all the castles and, you know, that whole chain yeah. of Legos. Well, I think you would love, you guys would just personally love this book, and a lot of our readers would, because it goes through the stages that of creation that Lego had to, you know, that Lego had to come up with. So, originally, um, so it, it's a Danish company, and uh, Lego is a shortening of a Danish phrase. It's like Legot, G-O-T, and it's it means play well. So, this... The guy huh. who invented um, who invented Legos, he just wanted to make really great toys, and he made, like, wooden ducks and wooden blocks and all this stuff. And one day he was talking to, and he was successful, but he couldn't figure out a toy that would get people to keep coming back to his store. And a buyer was complaining that toys, there were no, at the time, and this is in the, I think, the 40s or 50s, there were no toy systems you know, so mm. that's exactly what Lego is, and it seems so obvious now, is that you can... The most amazing thing about Legos is if you buy a Lord of the Rings Lego set right now, it is compatible with Legos that you got in the 1960s. <laughs> <laughs> so, so that is how... So he selected the blocks because those were... They were so flexible, and they could create anything and, and live for forever. So it's really interesting history of a company that just really wanted to make the best toys possible for kids. And just, like, a really ethical brand and just a really cool toy. So it's it's really, really, really interesting. And then to your point, Ryder, about you like the castle sets and everything, um, Lego took a big dip about five years ago and just had a lot of trouble selling toys and couldn't adjust to the... Um, to like the video game, more technological advances in children's lives. So they've had to attach themselves more to existing stories and narratives. So Star Wars Legos are the most popular thing that they sell. So they still sell regular Legos, but people are so excited about using Legos to fold into existing stories that they already love. So it's really interesting. It's a really Build a great castle, place. you will. Go to Dagobah, That's you will. <laughs> Build Dagobah from red and white Legos, you will. There is no trial. Exactly. I want the Game of Thrones Legos. <laughs> Me How do you just rape like, a maiden with a Lego? Yeah, just murder mm -hmm. incest Legos. I had a friend I remember vividly in elementary school who ate a Lego, and uh, oh. and then and I don't know if this part is true, but then he was like, yeah, and then then I had to crap it out, and it was really painful. And that sounds so painful. I guess theoretically it's probably there are true. Some edges. Yeah, <laughs> those things brick? those things didn't curve very well. <laughs> you know what? The more I think about, it, the more I think there's no way possible that it's true. He would have choked on it, right? It could have been a tiny know. like a. Four, like piece. a two by two square. Yeah, you could do that. I don't ever want to shit out a two by two square of Lego. <laughs> <laughs> That's the quote of the day. That uh, I just don't ever want that. And you don't have to. 
Welcome back to Literary Disco. For the second time ever on our show, we thought we would try and tackle a play. So I asked a friend of mine who is a big theater producer for a recommendation, um, my friend Andrew Carlberg, and he was nice enough to send along a play called Cock, which I thought maybe referred to a rooster. Why or, would you think that? Uh, <laughs> Cockfighting, or but no, it's. <laughs> I don't know. I just well, you know, there's a there's a very famous book called Cockfighter and a very famous movie. I but uh, no, it's actually uh, referring to the penis. It's uh, a very sparse play. It's written by Michael Bartlett, uh, English playwright. He's only born in 1980, so he's a young playwright, but he's pretty prolific. And um, in 2009, this premiered this play Cock premiered at the Royal Court and won a Laurence Olivier Award for outstanding achievement in in a wow. theater. And uh, he's already written a, a couple more plays. Cock right now is playing on, in New York at the Duke on 42nd Street. Uh, it's, right now it's playing through October. So if anybody uh, is listening and uh, enjoys our discussion and you're in New York, maybe you can go see the play. I would love to see this play. Me too. Um, yeah, I would love to see it too. I love Cock. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, what did you guys think of this play? <laughs> I really enjoyed it, but before before we talk about the content of it, can I ask you a question, yep. Ryder, since you've been in plays? And you mentioned it. You said it's a sparse play. Mm-hmm. Um, and at the beginning of the play, before the actual play begins, it says, um, the audience is raked down toward the actors. There is no scenery, no props, no furniture, and no mime. Instead, the focus is entirely on the drama of the yeah. scene. So does that mean... Um, so? And we'll get into the plot. This will be relevant in a moment. Does that mean there's... Even in a dinner scene, right. for instance, they're not sitting; they're just standing there saying the, it does. the I dialogue. Guess so. I mean, unless I mean, unless maybe I mean, yeah, that's that's clearly his intention as an author. But I mean, I'm sure somebody. I mean, probably not at this point because there's only been a couple productions. But maybe down the line, somebody could interpret it uh, their own way. But clearly, the way that he intends it is to be completely minimalist. Um, he doesn't even name three of the four characters in this play. We have the main character of John. And uh, just to give a sort of basic plot background, um, and this is a tough play because I actually enjoyed not knowing anything about it. Me too. And so, mm-hmm. um, if anybody's planning on seeing it, actually, um, maybe it's better if they don't listen. Essentially, it's a it's a it's a love triangle play, but obviously, there's a huge question of uh, sexuality, bisexuality, homosexuality, heterosexuality. It's three basic scenes, three basic uh, acts, and the third one is one really long excruciating dinner yes, scene uh, where all the characters are together. All the characters and a character's father are together. <laughs> but yeah, so I think I think the intention of the playwright it was to be as, as sort of minimal as possible. When I read that intro, Todd, mm-hmm. I was prepared to hate this place so much. Uh, so was I. I, I read that and I was like, that kind on. of stage direction. And I, right. there's something about, um, I've read a lot of plays that have this sort of like, we're going to reinvent the grammar wheel, um, like this play does, where it says like, when there's mm-hmm. a slash, that's when the next person starts to re- say their line. Um, it's kind of hard to explain um, to, for our listeners, but sometimes play, playwrights will like, you know, describe the specific grammar rules that they're going to function with. So like, periods mean this kind of pause. Uh, when a character's line doesn't have any lines, that's just a pause that's an emphasis on them. And 
And I, I, I hate that stuff usually. Uh, so I was ready to hate this play because I just I hate it when a, a playwright doesn't trust that the words and the actors can just do it. Um, or, or they're so demanding that they have to that the actors and the directors have to follow every word exactly as it's written and can't improvise. And I just you know I just have an instinctual reaction to that. But I have to say this play completely won me over by the end. Um, and me uh, too. And the, I, that didn't bother me the the grammar issue and the very specific specific. Uh, I really like this play because I I would like to see this play staged, but I also thought it was a fantastic play to read because the yeah. mm-hmm. the minimalist staging and base. So I read a review of it um, because I was so curious about how it was staged, and it was the actors don't even touch like they would interact but like the sex scene was the two of them facing forward and saying the you know having the dialogue um exactly Mm. as we read it and it's incredible because so much of the humor and suspense in this play comes from his made-up grammar rules in these big empty spaces which connotate pregnant pauses and he's i mean it's uh, I hate to make this comparison, but I'm going to do it. It's it's similar to a Hemingway story in which you are very slowly figuring out what's happening and your brain is doing right. this work, but it creates so much humor in the in the waiting and the misunderstandings of those spaces. And I think when it's staged, it without props, without scenery, without anything, it actually creates an almost identical experience to reading it. That is my guess, is that the dialogue is... There's big blank spaces, and then they'll say, oh, I can't believe you just did that, and you have no idea what that is yet. Oh, yeah, there's literally no stage direction in this play either. There's not a single entrance or exit described. Um, It's just... You just have to pick it out from the dialogue. It's entirely subjective, everything. But what you said, Julia, about a Hemingway story. I mean, I, I actually, as I was reading, it was like, oh, so this is sort of like Hills Like White Elephants yeah. as a morality play about homosexuality, bisexuality, and the politics of relationships. Yeah. So it's like mm-hmm. Hills Like Anal Sex, something like that. <laughs> um, <laughs> and hills Like is. White Asses. Um, Todd, 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 Todd found a way to get sodomy back into the... There's, <laughs> uh, there's our... Uh, there's the thing that's going to get the kids involved in the uh, in the listening experience. <laughs> it's a great podcast um, we have here, guys. Great podcast. <laughs> the the one thing that I, I was curious though, um, just to go back to this technical thing just for a moment is, and you were saying it about the blank spaces, Julia. He, it says in the directions, blank space between speeches and the dialogue indicates a silence equal to the length of the space. Mm-hmm. And I read that and I was like. How, what does that mean? What yeah. is the mathematical measurement by which time and space are but being measured? But then by the end, here? didn't you feel it? Like, yes. you, I totally felt it. It was a great it. reading I totally experience. I was so impressed. Yeah. I couldn't believe how much I cared about those gaps by the end. I was, when a gap came in, I was like, oh, it's so filled. I'm, you know, and I, in a way, I almost think I would prefer to read this play than to see mm-hmm. it. But of course, I haven't seen it, so I don't know. But I, I don't know, man. Reading it was a really fun experience. Like, I didn't even know. It starts with a conversation between John and M is the other character's name. I didn't even know if M was a man or a woman when I started the play. No, I, yeah. I, and, you know, I didn't and know so it took about, about three, pages, yeah. you know, three sort of mini scenes in before I was like, oh, and they started referencing being both guys. And I was like, oh, okay. Um, so even that, you know, wouldn't have happened if we were watching it as, as a production. I think it's a good play to read, too, because I think for someone who doesn't uh, participate in a lot of plays, and I've been in a lot of plays too, you sometimes forget that how much control the writer has over everything that's yeah. happening on stage, and it feels like it's all actor choice. And he's making huge choices for the actors that if I saw this stage, I would have thought were acting or directing choices that are so embedded in this minimalist script 
that it's really cool to see how much control he has over the mood of the play, which I sometimes don't feel when I read a play. I feel like it could be directed into so many different insane moods, whereas this is, it's it was really interesting emotional experience going through these <laughs> weird pauses and interruptions and crocheted teddy bear things. And I think the, the playwright has a, a great sense of, um, of insult, <laughs> like how to make someone feel terrible by saying something simple. So writer, writer broke down the basic idea of the story, which is that John and M uh, are a gay couple. They've had a break. John has had sex with a woman. Um, they're now trying to get back together. John then suggests that the woman come to dinner with them. And then at some point, uh, we realize that M has invited his father to be a part of the dinner, too, because uh, basically he doesn't know what to expect from this woman because of the way John has described her. <laughs> yeah. uh, but there's a point in the, in, the, in the first page of the play where John and M are, are fighting. Um, and John says, why are you being so nasty to me? And M says, because you're like a brother to me. And there's so many levels to that response. One is, oh, my God, this is your lover, and he's now like a brother to you, which then, you know, removes the sexuality from it and is an insult on that level. And then there's the closeness by which family members fight with each other. Right. Mm -hmm. um, that if you're an only child, you don't understand that when a, your brother or your sister or whomever says you're fat and you smell bad, what they're really saying is, is I love you and I wish you'd lose some weight because I don't want you to die. The smell part, you can control that on your own. It has nothing to do with your mortality. <laughs> so when he's fighting with him like a brother, it's, it's also such a deep embedded expression of love right. that I, immediately I was taken in by these characters that have absolutely no... Um, context for me as as julia said it's you know it's like hemingway you just have to figure it out through the things that they say and as soon as they said that line i was in i understood the parameters of this relationship i understood the the dead end of the relationship as well that if one person says you're like a brother to me in a right. romantic relationship you know what <laughs> move out yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's over well that I, that's um, I, I i loved it because it's such a strange line it comes early on in the play and i i mm -hmm. thought i had the same reaction i was like that's really a weird thing to say and and you sort of it sticks in your head it's something m says m you know mm -hmm. says it to john and then the real payoff is that m invites his father and you re you start seeing this sort of like family connection you know like how important family is to m so it, it it grows the idea of his perception of family and and uh unconditional love that uh, that comes with a family and that's why he's fighting so hard for this relationship with john is that he's he's accepted john as a family member so even though mm -hmm. they kind of hate each other and they and they treat each other awfully at so so many t points throughout the play uh in M's perspective, they've made a commitment. They're essentially married. They are family. He's his brother. And that is mm -hmm. just, you know, you see the way the father has that approach and M has that approach. It's, it's a brilliantly constructed character. And there, there's a great moment uh, a couple pages later where um, they're talking about who they are and what they mean to each other. And John says, we live under the same roof. We go to bed at night. We fuck and chat and cook and eat and everything. But I think only now, only now, I'm beginning to realize, yes, look at us, that we're fundamentally different people. We're like, I mean, your eggs and I'm... Cheese. And M says, <laughs> cheese. <laughs> <laughs> 
And then John says, no, what's the opposite? And he's like, what, what, what is the opposite of egg? It's a fully formed human being is what the opposite of egg <laughs> is. Or a fully formed creature is the opposite of egg. Right. Um, and so there's, there's these, you know, it's just a strange level of fighting that people do when they're close to each other oh. also. And that, uh, this whole fight that they have, they're angry and they're sad and they're pissed off, but they don't stop being people with a history with one another. And I think sometimes um, when you see something that doesn't seem real to you, a play or a book or a movie or whatever, where people fight um, and it, it, and all of a sudden one person explodes. And I, I was thinking in this about the movie Chasing Amy. I don't know if you guys remember the movie oh, Chasing yeah. Amy. Um, yeah, and I, it, I guess it has a, some pretty good parallels. But there's a point at which the Ben Affleck character blows up at the woman, what's her name, Joey Lauren Adams, mm -hmm. about his great connection to her and how she can't do this to him. And it has no bearing because they haven't had any connection yet. Right. But here, and so that, that's an example of it not feeling real. Here, it feels real because they fight at such a cellular level. Mm -hmm. You know, they're, they're fighting about things that are emotional and existential but also you're like cheese and i'm eggs no the opposite and it's just a that weird um interplay between people who know each other well yeah i mean in some some ways it was really painful to read because <laughs> it yeah. you know reminds you of your most intimate fights that's mm -hmm. what I, this play really it feels is this, despite its sparseness despite the lack of information about the characters you're very quickly thrust into a long-term relationship in that moment of real crisis, you know, and like I, you, identity reevaluation based on your your partner, and oh god, it's painful. Uh, yeah, regardless of the sexuality question, which obviously adds a whole nother layer to this play, just on the simple relationship dynamic story, it's wonderful and mm -hmm. and, and hard to read, but funny, funny at times too. I, th I think the humor really saves this play. Because the second that yeah. father walks in, you're just like, oh, my God. And, you know, there's actually a line where somebody says, this is a farce. You realize that, right? right. And it's so yeah, true. Yeah. It's like, okay, the structure of this play could very easily have gone into high farce. I mean, it's kind of basic, right? Like, oh, oh dinner with everybody all at the same time. Like, isn't this going to get crazy? Uh, and so there's an element of that that is very funny and entertaining and sort of basic uh, in, in terms of play structure. But damn, it's really inventive and exciting. And, um, you know, I also didn't think, because there's a lot of theater out there about uh, sexuality. There's a lot yeah. of, you know, gay theater, uh, you know, plays about being gay or straight or bisexual. And so I have to say that was another thing when I realized that that was going to be, that was like, oh, is this going to be like all these other plays I read, you know, contemporary plays? And it was like, no, this actually made it feel fresh and interesting and you know, traumatic and hard to, you know, I, I didn't know how I wanted this play to end. I really didn't. It was like, I don't know mm -hmm. what I'm rooting for here. I'm just in pain. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, just like, I mean, that's the, that's how I think how you're supposed to feel. I think it's very well executed and, you know, someone's being uh, essentially has like an emotional gun to his head and is being forced to decide his sexuality and he can't. And I, I really liked when it got to the point where he, I mean, he goes through a lot of philosophical arguments in this dinner party of, you know, what about the Romans and all this stuff. But the most, <laughs> um, I think the most compelling was when he stops this whole, he essentially, the main character, John, stops the drama by saying, why, 
why do I have to choose the sexuality? Aren't I actually just choosing between human beings? And isn't that right. more important? And all three of the rest of them are essentially like, no, you know, you must, you <laughs> might have to come down about where you lie in a, in your sexuality for the rest of your life. And I, I thought that was really interesting. I mean, I will say, I think I would have liked this play no matter what the content was. I think it's really on the nose in terms of, you know, it's very simple. Choose between a man and a woman. I think it would still work if it was choosing between any genders. I don't think it has to be yes. about sexuality to work. Well, no. What's what's great about it is that it, it starts to feel like it is more about the personalities of the the male partner versus the female partner because they're very distinct characters and yeah. and mm-hmm. they have very different approaches to John um, and that's why it's so interesting to me that John's the only one that gets a name right it's like he's you know and in some ways I was like oh is he just like that is this a completely narcissistic play about you know this guy and it is to a certain extent like it, it's so much of it just hinges on John being indecisive about this. In the same way that we're all indecisive at times about who we love or, you know, regardless of the sexuality question, but the sexuality just adds this more pressing layer. You know, it's like he's not just choosing between partners. Everybody's looking at him saying, you need to choose your entire identity as a human being. And that just raises the stakes. But actually what it comes down to in so much in this play is you just get the feeling like he's just got to decide who does he love, you know, and what kind mm-hmm. of relationship he wants, because she's offering him a very different style of relationship than um he is and that you know it it becomes more about their characters which is brilliant but it still has this sort of theoretical philosophical question of how do you define sexuality and how do you define yourself in relationship to you know who you love and i mean it also asks asks big questions about the essence of monogamy as well um you know monogamy both emotional and physical monogamy and i think that's really what the fight is with John is that the sex part isn't isn't as compelling well maybe it's not as compelling an argument to to play out on the stage as an emotional one and I think that's what they're dealing with is you know he's deciding you know how he wants to live the rest of his life as you said but there there comes a point I think in in any person's life where if you're 75 years old um and you're you and you're bisexual it doesn't matter if you if you're alone if you're bisexual right. you know you you can want to have sex with men or want to have sex with women it doesn't matter if you if you don't have love it's you know you're you're still you, you you've you've struck out on in both directions mm-hmm. and you know isn't that the question that we always have about about long-term relationships and love is that it's not just about capturing the feeling that you have at that moment. It's about understanding that that moment is to exist in perpetuity. It's that, you know, you are going to capture that moment and you're going to die with it. Um, unless you're my parents, in which case you get divorced after about 15 years and then you fight for the rest of your lives. Um, but (laughs) so I think there's that, that undercurrent that's brought in also by the father's existence yeah. because we don't get anything about the mother in this relationship either. So there's it, it's a very it's a very strange uh, it's not a triad but when there's four people what, what is it when there's four people uh, a quadrad quad it's a very strange quadratic quadratic discussion that goes on um, about the essence of love and monogamy and marriage and sex and all that stuff at the end of this play. I was reminded of um, so there's a a great um, author, uh, David Leavitt, or maybe it's Levitt. Do you guys know him? Oh, who wrote uh, 
He writes short stories. I don't know. He's he's, he's written. I, I think he's a he's a big time author. But um, I I read him in a contemporary lit class. Um, he's he, he writes about gay issues a lot, and he mm-hmm. wrote a book that's I really loved, and we read in this class called the 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 Lost Language of Cranes. I think is what it's hmm. called. I'll have to double check that. But Lost Language of Cranes, and it's um, it's all about a guy who's who's gay, and um, then his father, who's still in his relation in a relationship with his mother, uh, comes out of the closet as well. It's a really great book, but it's funny. Um, it was written in the in the eighties, I think, and it, it, in class, uh, you know, we were discussing it, and there's a scene in the book where the father says, like, "Well, what if I'm bisexual?" and the the, the main character of the book and the book itself is very dismissive of the idea of bisexuality. You know, it's mm. just like, oh, well, that's just not being able to admit that you're gay yet. And uh, we started talking about it in class and people were mentioning the fact that that was the pervading view, you know, of sexuality, even within the gay community until relatively recently. You know, the idea that like, well, you're either gay or straight. There's no such thing as something mm. in between. Yeah. And it's one of those kind of contentious. Unless you're a girl in college, in which case there is <laughs> some place in between. But I think that, you know, that's that it's been a relatively recent idea, you know, within you know about the last. I don't know, 10, 20 years to even talk about bisexuality as a sort of middle identity or that sexuality Mm -hmm. can be fluid because I think especially the beginning of the gay rights movement was so predicated on being absolutely one thing, you know, and that that this is an an unchanging aspect of my identity. And that's just complicated by the realities of, like, who people fall in love with and obviously the realities of sexuality, you know, are somewhere more in between. And I think that this, this play becomes an excellent way to explore those issues mm-hmm. because you know those issues it's like you can have an abstract conversation about them as much as you want but when you're talking about sex and love and partnership the best way to explore it is through storytelling and through scene yes. making and this play is just such a perfect examination of some of these issues you know like as i've had this discussion before i mean i've had i mean i i know people who were gay and then suddenly you know in a relationship with a woman and they lost a lot of their gay friends, you know, or they got a lot of crap for it. And it was alienating for them in like two different directions. And, um, yes. you know, I actually got into a huge fight with my fiance once about this. Cause I, I, you know, I made some sort of offhand comment about like, well, it would be really tough to be bisexual because wouldn't you always be somewhat dissatisfied? And she's like, no, because you're just, you just pick a partner. You're just in a relationship. And she was like, it's just like being monogamous. Mm -hmm. Are you dissatisfied that you can't have sex with more people all the time? And I was like, well, kind of, but no, um, (laughs) but you know, the idea, well, that's what I wanted to talk to you about. (laughs) But you know, and and we, but it was this question of like, well, what do you love about somebody? Is, is their, their gender an essential part of what you love about them? Or is it that you just love a person and then that, you know, whatever it's, it's obviously a huge overwhelming question that everybody kind of has to answer for themselves or every situation has to be defined on, on its own terms. And that's why I love this play is that it takes this very tough theoretical idea and makes it real, makes it human mm-hmm. and personal. Yeah. There, there was a great essay last year by a writer named Seth Fisher that I believe was in The Rumpus um, that I'll have to find and I'll, I'll put up on our, on our Facebook, um, where he talks about this very thing about bisexuality and, and you know, the urges in, in, in every direction, both emotional and physical. And it, when I read it, it was one of the first things that I'd ever read that really, I think, encapsulated sort of the, the emotional tumult for the person who is in that place, and this would be the second, you know, of, of that constant tug and pull. And I think, you know, it, what, what Alex said, writer, about, you know, are you dissatisfied? I think the, the question becomes for me, as someone who's not bisexual, is to say, 
the same thing that you did, which is, but aren't you always wondering what else that other thing is? I mean, right. I mean, only having one sexuality closes off your your emotional and physical options to only half of, of the world's world. population, <laughs> which you know I, I think I think makes makes it you know makes Simpler. commitment in some way yeah. easier. Yeah. So, but if you're if you're twenty or or whatever, and you're not looking at commitment, you're just looking at having a good time. Bisexuality sounds like the best way you could ever possibly go. <laughs> right. I mean, you're 19. Go fuck everything. You, use protection, kids. Um, yeah. Let's 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 use protection. Um, but you know, it, if, if that's your predilection, shit, you, right. you got a much better chance of going home at the end of the night at a nightclub than the rest of us. I totally agree. And I think, I mean, I I really love this play too. But I think if done poorly, a something that I was wondering about somewhere in the middle is the dangerous. Um, assumption that not assumption but uh, you could interpret this play and that you know the woman is representative of all women or the male partner represents all gay men and their behavior like he's a fabulous cook and he's like really kitschy and the woman is like like really sensitive Mm -hmm. and you know there's there's a danger there to assume that any person represents their entire gender which i think you can it it would take a mature and intelligent director to avoid that and great actors to make sure these characters are complex but i mean that it you know, not all women are this woman, and not all gay men mm-hmm. are this man. And I think that's really important that's a really element of the play. Good point. Mm-hmm. Because I, I, while you're saying that, I'm just realizing this play is going to be performed horribly for so many years to come. Yes, oh, totally. Like this is going to be like the go-to like high school freshman in college. Uh, you know, well, let's do a very powerful and important scene from a very powerful and important play. Oh, that's, this is going to be so heavy-handed. And this girl. I mean, not to get back there. I know our listeners love it, but this girl could so easily be played by Zoe Deschanel. You know what I mean? Manic, right. pixie, uh. dream girl that pulls you away to a new sexuality. But there's also so many women who could play it, you know, so well and so beautifully and intelligently that, you know, I hope this play is done well. <laughs> the thing I think that is is interesting about sort of the danger of you that you brought up, Julia, um, is... That we can expect that parents will always be this nice. <laughs> that we can expect fathers to be this understanding. I mean, I, I, of course, we see it now more and more. And I always see on Facebook some variation of a story of, you know, someone comes out to their father and the father says, why would I love you any less than the day that you were born? And I see this story as a variation so often that I believe now that it's apocryphal and that you know, maybe it has happened once or twice or many times, but the, the way that it's told as this story is, you know, it, it's now become urban legend in a way. But, um, you know, I, I, I think that it's a very advanced expression of this character. And at one point, the father says, we all have views, which, you know, is a very understated thing to say about anything. But as a as a overarching discussion of this topic, you start to understand that, who he is has been an evolution as well, um, which oh, I think sure. is you know fascinating to me. I love the father too because I, I mean I I think it's so it was such a great addition to the play to put him in there emotionally because and, and to have him not and to have him be supportive of this gay relationship because that was actually an emotional manipulation that was almost even worse than like good. I, yes. I hate you because mm-hmm. what he says is it's so it's like the worst possible thing to say is like 
well, my wife died just knowing that her son was happy, accepting that he was right. gay and living with you. And, <laughs> you know, of course, on the one hand, that's the Facebook post of like, oh, aren't they accepting? On the other hand, it's like, go away. This is none of your business. You know, your wife's right. death is not a part of this you know, a emo- man relationship choosing, yeah. <laughs> you know, the rest of his life, essentially. So the review I read uh, affirmed what I had assumed during the play, which is that they're, you know, they're standing, they're blocked in various ways throughout the stage, or maybe they're facing each other, or maybe they're facing the audience, but they are doing the dialogue without pretending. There's no sense of like, oh, we're going to create this scene with our hands or whatever. There's no props. There's no set. And there's no miming. There is it is dialogue and regular blocking, and that's it. And probably some lighting. Can I ask a, a simple question? Sure. Wouldn't their legs get tired? They're just standing there on the stage talking for You're an you know idiot. an hour of a play. <laughs> Can you yeah. not stand there like for one play hour? before? Like- <laughs> Well, yeah, but there's also there's the pressure of the performing, and I'm like, I just I was thinking, my God, I mean, Hamlet's on stage for like three hours in that play. But, the, I mean, the, but there's you just never thought about a, this before. They take a seat sometimes. There are plays where people have to do like sword fighting for you know yeah, twenty but minutes. They get, and, they get to rest. They get to go in the back and snort coke or whatever, and then come back out. God. This is so. Look, can I ask another important question? So I, I haven't. Is it going to be? I know in the stupid? interview that. <laughs> yes, I know. I said in the interview in the Rumpus, I'd done a little summer stock. That's not true. Last time I was in a play, I was in high school. So let me ask you an important question, you professionals who are on stage all the time. What happens during a live performance when you got to go? You got to figure it out. You either hold it, or you know, you, that's luckily usually there's an intermission, so at that time. <laughs> I think most. Yeah, I'll tell you something that that can that can really fuck you up when you're yes. on stage is if you start thinking, "Do I have a booger hanging out of my nose?" <laughs> and like the second you think that, you have to check. So when you you have to check, and then like so there were a couple of nights when I was doing this play where I I realized like I was constantly focusing on that because you reach a point where you know two months into doing the same play you you know every moment inside and out you've you know you just you know your fellow actor so you just zone out at certain times and if you're not careful you start zoning out about like oh i think something's hanging out of my nose i swear something is because then you're just like everyone sees it they're all staring at thousands of people in this audience right now so like for me i had to develop a code with like my fellow actors just be like if there ever is anything you know do this hand signal or whatever because otherwise i'm never gonna know i'll do that (laughs) booger booger todd i think there's two major um schools of thought on the bathroom issue which is either that you completely like the adrenaline like dries you up and you become a robot and you don't have to do anything or you nervously use the bathroom immediately prior to going on stage so next time you guys uh go see a play just think probably about half the people just voided everything just before they walked out (laughs) (laughs) well you know i guess i'm i'm uh i'm in front of people a lot and i don't ever have to go to the bathroom when i'm you know doing whatever it is that i'm doing in front of large audiences of people reading or talking or whatever so maybe it's the same thing where I have just spent the previous nine hours binging and purging uh, yeah. before I get up there. Somebody somebody pointed out to me once, and, and this has been true in my experience, but is that you'll never sneeze as an actor. Like, when you're actually in a scene, you never 
Hmm. Have a, like a sneeze never comes on. And I th- I was thinking about that. I was like, that's true. Whenever I'm rolling, I mean, I sneeze all the time in life, but for whatever reason, when I'm in the zone, when I'm acting, I've never sneezed. Wow. And I don't know. I mean, it seems like in some ways it's a physical reaction. So if you got dust, it would happen. But obviously there's something about your brain that turns that, that instinct off yeah. or quelches it. Adrenaline. Well, in this case, uh, you know, if you guys, are, if you guys go and see cock in New York, um, watch the actors for boogers, check to see if maybe one of them might have to pee a little bit. Um, and, uh, if anyone zones out, see if, uh, you know, see if you notice, I think that's, that should be the new game is go see plays and tell us when you see people really performing poorly. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Actually, I, if anybody has seen Cock or is going to see it, please let us know and give us a give us the rundown because I'm so curious. Yeah. Yeah. Well, now I have to pee based on that conversation. <laughs> <laughs> and that's it for this episode of Literary Disco. Join us in two weeks when we discuss Chinway Achebe's Things Fall Apart. Like us on Facebook, facebook.com slash literarydisco, and follow us on Twitter, at literarydisco, and join us on our Goodreads page for the Literary Disco Group. Thanks for listening. Oh,